please turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. I have the privilege of beginning another book of the New Testament with you all, specifically from a collection of writings penned by the Apostle Paul, commonly known as the prison epistles. So we'll be looking at the first eight verses tonight. So before we read our passage, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are humbled, grateful to be in your presence, to be indwelt by your spirit so that we may glean wisdom from your word and apply it accordingly. Thank you for the ability to do that through the accomplishments of your holy son, Jesus. We do all these things for your glory and for your glory alone. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Let's begin with the reading of the passage. If you're there already, please follow along. Colossians chapter 1. This is Paul writing to the believers in Colossae by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. That is the word of the Lord. So every time I begin a new letter from the Apostle Paul, I always like to take some time to highlight a specific scripture at the moment of Paul's conversion. And that passage is Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. So Jesus comes to Ananias in a dream in Acts 9 and tells him to go look for a man named Saul of Tarsus. Obviously, knowing who Saul of Tarsus was, Ananias becomes fearful and hesitant and basically says, this man is dangerous. Don't you know how much harm he's done to your people? Not to mention in the place I'm in now, he would have much more power to bind all who call on your name. So obviously I'm paraphrasing for the sake of time here. But when we get to the passage um, that I like to remind myself of and want to share with you all tonight as a warm-up to not just Colossians, but any of Paul's writings. Jesus responds to Ananias with this, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So why do I mention this passage? Why do I seek to mention this passage before speaking about anything regarding Paul and his writings? The reason for that is because Paul's life was literally orchestrated to be a life of pain and suffering. 
He literally ends Colossians with the phrase, remember my chains or remember my imprisonment. This serves as the foundational background for all of Paul's experiences, writings, prayers, rebukes, exhortations, and everything else we see from the Apostle Paul in Scripture. So I just wanted to open up with that because Paul writes to, Col- to Colossae from Roman house arrest. And also to encourage you that any pain and suffering that we experience in this life that obviously isn't self-inflicted is for the purpose of bearing Christ's name to the watching world. Our pain, our suffering is not like the world's pain and suffering. Our pain and suffering has a purpose. Now, I want to spend a little time setting the stage for the first eight verses we will hopefully get through tonight by giving some context on Paul's letter to the Colossians. So to put it as simply as possible, what is Colossians about? So I had the incredible privilege of finishing uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians uh, while our precious daughter was in my wife's womb, and now she is here alive in the flesh, um, and it's, it's humbling. Um, so if, if Philippians is joy, rejoicing in the Lord, regardless of circumstances, what is Colossians about? If someone asks you, hey, I, I flipped through my Bible and I saw this, this, you know, Colossians or something like that, they'll probably mispronounce it. But what is it about? Like briefly, you have 30 seconds to tell me. So essentially Colossians answers the question, is Jesus enough? Plain and simply, is Jesus enough? If you're asked to elaborate, you can say this. Colossians is about the complete and utter supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. A very simple outline you can remember for Colossians is chapters is that chapters 1 and 2 explain how Christ is supreme and sufficient for salvation. And that chapters three and four explain how Christ is supreme and sufficient for sanctification. Jesus alone is able to save me, chapters one and two. Jesus alone is able to sanctify me, chapters three and four. Now to dig into the context a little bit further, who was Paul writing to exactly? Paul writes to believers in a city called Colossae, a city in Southwest Asia Minor, Colossae was a city of Phrygia on the Lycus River. Phrygia was a small agricultural community known for an obsession with magic and the occult. And as we go through this letter, we see the impact that that has, that that context has on the believers there and their own practices and how that infiltrates the church. So did Paul know the Colossians personally? Did he plant the church? So as we go through this letter, we, we can conclude that he, he didn't. He didn't personally know them. He wasn't there to plant the church. The church likely began during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, as we see in Acts chapter 19. So during this time, a Colossian named Epaphras, he probably traveled to Ephesus and responded to Paul's proclamation of the gospel. Epaphras then returned to his hometown of Colossae and began sharing the good news. 
which resulted in the birth of the Colossian church. How wonderful is that? Do you see the faithfulness there in both preaching the gospel, hearing it, and sending it, proclaiming it to the people that you love the most, your hometown? It's beautiful. So why does Paul write this letter? So at the time of writing this, Epaphras is with Paul in Rome and has likely shared the bad news that there was a dangerous teaching threatening the church at Colossae. This teaching is what theologians and commentators refer to as the Colossian heresy. So there's a lot of debate on what exactly this heresy was. Um, if you spend time in several you know, commentaries and hearing different sermons on Colossians, um, you'll, you'll, you'll hear about this heresy going on in the Colossian church. We can't really pinpoint exactly what it was, but I'll, I'll hopefully try to summarize it here today or as we go through this letter. So Paul essentially is writing to address this false teaching infiltrating the church. They were believing that Christ, yeah, that whole Jesus gospel thing was a good start, but I needed more to grow more godly. I need Jewish holidays. I need pagan rituals. I need a strict Jewish diet. I need vain and deceitful philosophies. I need elaborate worship experiences. I need a dynamic pastor who has at least a million followers on Instagram and maybe a couple tattoos. I need all of these things on top of who Jesus is in order for me to grow in godliness. This is what was at stake. This is the problem with this whether one bases their faith on that false teaching or on Christ. You see how that can be a problem, especially considering who Jesus is. And it only makes sense that Paul spends several words explaining exactly who Jesus is in the first two chapters. Paul writes to clarify that Christ is completely supreme and sufficient for all things. The Colossian church was made up of both Jew and Gentile believers. So we can assume that this Colossian heresy probably consisted of both forms of Jewish legalism and pagan Gentile cultic practices. And like I said, we'll, we'll eventually get to that. So to reiterate before we get into the outline, the main point of this letter is the person and finished work of Christ. Explained in beautiful detail in chapters 1 and 2. And the commands that flow from the person and finished work of Christ. Beautifully explained in chapters 3 and 4. So this is who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Therefore, go and do this. That is Colossians in a nutshell. So because this letter is about Christ's supremacy and sufficiency, it's only natural for Paul to begin with precious, precious gospel truths. And so this is where we start. So if you have an outline in front of you, I'll just briefly go through each point. So I titled this message, Gratitude for a Fruitful Gospel. So in, this, in, in the first eight verses of Colossians, I ask the question, what are four characteristics about the gospel that Paul expresses gratitude for to the church in Colossae? 
The first one is the creator of the gospel in verses one and two. The gospel is authored and authorized by God according to his own will. Point number two will be the content of the gospel. What is, what is the gospel, essentially? The gospel consists of faith in Jesus, love for others, because of the hope of heaven. The third point is the consistency of the gospel. <clears throat> the gospel has historically been active, fruitful, and truthful for all of time. It has not changed, and we'll see that when we we'll see that a little further, a little more in depth when we get there. And then, lastly, the carriers of the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed by faithful, servant-hearted believers. And so we'll begin there with point number one: the gospel is authored and authorized by God according to His will. First two verses: Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So this is a typical opening address from the Apostle Paul. Yet I couldn't help but notice a very, a very important phrase, and that is, by the will of God. Paul immediately points out that he became an apostle by the will of God and not his own indicating that although he hadn't met the Colossians, he held apostolic authority over them through this letter. Apostolic authority means authority of the Father through Christ's agency. And I'll use an example to kind of explain that a little better. So if I was a baseball player with an agent, I would very rarely talk to the GMs or the owners of those teams. Instead, my agent would make the phone calls. He would schedule the meetings to get me in that room with the owner or with the GM. It is because of the agent's abilities, reputations, that I'm able to enter into those spaces. It's the same thing with what is happening here so because of Christ's agency, I am able to confidently, yet humbly, enter into the presence of the Father. And that is a glorious truth. Paul uses the word apostle here because of the lack of, of personal famili familiarity that he had with the Colossians and the critical nature of the directional issues that he plans to address. So right off the get-go, he explains, hey, I'm an apostle and that's important because he's going to address a lot of issues. He, as many people like to use the phrase, he's in their kitchen. He's in their kitchen here. So the natural response would be, who gives you the right, Paul? We don't know you. Who gives you the right to address these types of issues going on several hundred miles away? And Paul's answer is, my apostolic authority. He witnessed the resurrected Lord with his own eyes, received his message directly from Jesus, and he was recognized among the other authorized church leaders. That's why. That's why he's able to address this. Yet before 
before there is an ounce of ego and self-appointed righteousness, we have the next phrase, by the will of God. So though your position may not have an official status, the Lord calls each one of us individually for his own glory according to his own will. And that's reassuring, isn't it? Something that we get to meditate on and remain secure under. This reminds me of, of uh, the, youth, the youth study as we're going through the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, I like to use the phrase, the university of the spiritual gifts. If you don't know, university is a combination of two words, university and diversity. Every university isn't just one um, major, it's several for the purpose of benefiting society. Similarly, the, the, the Holy Spirit gives a diverse set of gifts to remain united for one goal, and that is to build up the church, to edify the church. I like to use a phrase, um, more than one gift for more than one person. That's the purpose of spiritual gifts. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 say, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping. Here's the reason why God has done all of these things for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So if you call, if you have the audacity to call yourself a teacher, a pastor, an apostle, an evangelist, even a prophet, and are not benefiting the church and building up the body of Christ, that's a problem, to say the least. And we see that more and more every day. So Timothy, as many of you know already, was Paul's right-hand man, a faithful brother in the Lord who also may have been a secretary, a secretary writer for him. Yet as a follower of Christ and participant in his kingdom, every believer has significance and purpose because each has been called by God individually. Yes, we have revivals. Yes, we do have mass people getting saved, especially in the book of Acts. But ultimately, people are saved individually into a community, out of the community of the world into the community of the church, which is why we partake in the Lord's Supper publicly with others, which is why we baptize publicly in front of others. I like to use the analogy of of baptism is the doorway into the home and the Lord's Supper is the meal you share with the people inside. That's the value of it. So meditating on that truth, this is why when he goes into into his initial greeting in verse two, he is addressing the larger Christian community. He says to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. He says saints and faithful brethren, but aren't those the same thing? Those are the same thing, right? If you're a saint, I would assume, hopefully, I would assume you're a faithful brother or sister. If you're a part of the faithful brethren, I would assume you're a saint. But I think Paul writes it in this way to reflect the way he constructs the entire letter. And here's why. Saints are those who bear the holy status in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. 
Saints often communicates a positional holiness. Right where I'm standing, I am holy, blameless, blood-washed, born-again believer. And then faithful brethren communicates this ongoing holiness in love, in love for one another. So saints is, this is what Christ has accomplished for you, positionally, right where you stand. Faithful brethren communicates this, this idea of this is how you obey and love. This is how you are faithful. Both are God's work in and through you. Is that encouraging to you? That right where you sit, you are holy and blameless. And then you go out into the world and you, be, and you are faithful and you are holy and blameless, regardless of your mistakes, regardless of your paths. That your holy status and holy behavior is rooted and grounded in God's hand over your life. Is that encouraging to you? He gives you both the motivation to obey and the status of perfect obedience because of Christ. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. If you don't take anything else away from tonight, I want you to just meditate on that. Positionally righteous and actively righteous. That's something that motivates us to obey further. And then he closes his initial greeting with the ever so comforting grace of God and peace. His favor and his restoration, this restoration of harmony between two groups who were once at odds with each other, which is what peace is, this brought a great deal of security and comfort, I'm sure. Paul's greeting here served to welcome the Colossians to the family of faith. To celebrate the divine privileges they now shared and to inspire their faithful service in the gospel mission. I pray when you came to Saving Faith, I pray that you were surrounded by faithful believers, a beautiful community to help you along the way, to raise you up, All of this in the opening two verses highlights the God who made it all possible. So to recap point number one, the gospel is authored and authorized by God according to his perfect and sovereign will. So now that we've gotten a glimpse of who kickstarted the divine rescue mission, we continue along in our passage to see what that rescue mission entails. What does it look like now? We've been rescued. What does it look like? What does it entail? We will see this in point number two. Point number two, the gospel, the content of the gospel. The gospel consists of faith in Jesus, love for others because of the hope of heaven. In verse three, we give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Praying always for you. So that word giving thanks in the Greek is eucharisteo, which is where the Catholic Church gives, gets the word Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And what do we do when we partake in the Lord's Supper? We remember and reflect on the cross of Christ until he returns, thankfully. 
with gratitude. This time of reflection is obviously packed with thankful prayer. This time in prayer stems from careful, careful consideration of the effects of God's grace upon our lives. It's a beautiful word. It's encouraging. I don't think we reflect long enough on the miraculous nature of the gospel. Honestly, that became incredibly apparent when I began teaching here. It was very easy to acquire this attitude of like, oh man, although this is a Christian school, I don't know how God does it. To see a person, a teenager at that, turn from their ways and their friends' ways and look to Jesus and follow his ways is miraculous. Especially, I mean, many of you have children. Many of you have raised teenagers. So you know. You get so frustrated that they, why can't you just listen? Listen and obey. And when they do, do we show them proper gratitude? Son, daughter, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for doing it the first time I asked. Isn't that beautiful? It's a miracle. It's a literal miracle when that happens. Not just in the home, but when someone comes to Christ at a very young age and is active and faithful. Instead of getting spiteful and judgmental when I see the behavior around campus, I thank God because I look at these students and I'm like, that was me. That was me. And it provokes such a genuine, genuine heart of gratitude. And that gratitude, is, it's like motivation to me. And it should be motivation to us. It's like a spiritual shot of espresso to pray for them. God, I, I, I thank you for what you've done in my life. And so therefore, the natural effect is I'm going to pray for that, that teenager who's struggling, who is, who is bright and intelligent and special so that they can use those gifts and those abilities to honor Christ. Gratitude will always lead to prayer. If Christians have a continual mindset of prayer, they will have a thankful mindset. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18 say, Pray without ceasing, ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will, God's will is no secret. I remember when I first came to faith, when I was a freshman in college, it was always, oh, what's God's will for my life? I have no idea. And that in turn would cause a lot of disobedience. I just don't know. God hasn't revealed enough to me yet. So I'm just going to go about this way. I'm going to do my own thing. But in reality, God's will is completely plain to see in scripture. We become spiritually malnourished and impoverished when we are not consistently, thankfully reflecting upon God's grace. 
Paul's prayer here informs our understanding of our redemption and provokes our heartfelt gratitude to the Lord. What is their motive for thanking God, though? We see that in verses, five, in verses 4 and the beginning of 5. Verse 4 says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So here's the thing. The energetic presence and vibrancy of their faith resulted in a testimony that had made its way all the way to Paul, all the way to Rome. And he was grateful for it. Faith in the Greek is pistis, which means trust or reliance. Some commentators even define it as allegiance. Now, obviously, we have the black and white definition of faith in Hebrews 11, in verse 1, where the author writes, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. To many, that can kind of seem like, well, what does that mean? Um, it's a wonderful definition, but one commentator kind of rephrased it and it allowed me to have a better grasp on it. And he said this, faith is treating the future as present and the invisible as visible. Treating the future as present and the invisible as visible. Does that help you to know to, to have a grasp on the future, the victory in Christ, the, the holistic consummation of the world being perfected and living that out now. That's what faith is. Obviously, you can't see it, but it's living it now. And that's what faith is. Faith, true biblical blood-washed faith gets around. It gets around. You'll hear about it. Which is why Paul says, we over here in Rome, we have heard. We've heard. We know about you. How could something that is unseen spread so swiftly? How could it? Because it's coupled with love. How could it spread so vast and penetrate throughout history the reason for that is because it's coupled with love. I know 1 Corinthians chapter 13 describes it, but can you define it? Can you define love? Believers often think about 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. And then you may answer, well, God, right? Because God is love, which is true. But what does God do? What does God do? God, through both affections and actions, because you need both, selflessly looks out for the well-being of another. That's what love is. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 describes. That's what it's describing. Selflessly, through both affection and action, like I said, you need both, looking out for the well-being of another. So why, why is faith and love coupled together here? 
The reason for that is because those who have been transformed by the Savior's love direct that love towards others. Because of the, of the supernatural faith that has saved me, naturally, what follows is love. It absolutely should. 1 John 4, verses 10 and 11 say, is, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. They are not separate. The vertical relationship with Christ is inseparably linked to the horizontal relationship with, with other Christians, with other people. Love literally looks like the cross. Do you understand that? In both vertical relationship with God and horizontal relationship with others. And it's painful. Anyone who has experienced true, biblical, ravishing love understands the threat of pain. The threat of pain and loss. The moment, the moment my daughter was born, I realized my heart, my heart is absolutely out in the open to be crushed. And that began getting, with getting married. My heart is now completely exposed. I'm outside of control. But what has ministered to, ministered to me the most is a, a faithful brother of mine said, you have to understand that they're, they're God's children first. And that's been an incredible comfort to me because the world is dark. And just meditating and just thinking about raising a daughter in such a world. The fact that the two most important people in my life are women in this dark and perverse world is scary. But what comforts me is faith. Coupled with love. Love is dangerous. Love will put you face to face with God. And have and and completely unravel you so that he may make you new. It's necessary. It's absolutely essential. The former always gives rise to the latter. So they were trusting exclusively in the person and work of Christ for salvation and their lives had been transformed. Has yours This is groundbreaking, especially considered the mix of Jew and Gentile believers. The Gentiles were dirty pagans to the Jews. And the fact that Christ has accomplished a way for them to, to not just be, be able to be in the same room, but to be a part of the same body. That's miraculous. That's blood-washed, forgiven love. Accomplished by death. Secured by a resurrection. That's, that's beautiful. So how is one able to hold fast to this? That's tough. Faith and love together? That seems almost impossible, unbearable. How are we able to grasp this? And verse five, the first part of verse five answers this for us. 
because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The faith and love that we exhibit spring from the hope we have in Christ. That's how we're able to have faith, secured faith, and a love that penetrates throughout the world is because of Christ's resurrection. Hope is the stimulating source for, their, for the Colossians and our abiding faith and active love. Something that will remain and something that will work. Miraculous faith and love are possible because of the hope that the gospel provides. I love what Peter says about hope in 1 Peter um, chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is glorious. That is what causes children to come home. That is what causes marriages to stay. That is what causes addictions to be broken. That is what causes little back and forth bickering amongst believers in the church to completely cease. They're meaningless. Strain from this hope was obviously a serious concern for Paul because in verse 23, he says, do not be moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Paul overflows with gratitude as he writes from a prison cell because they trusted Jesus, loved their former enemies, Jew and Gentile relations, and lived lives shaped by a hope secured of heaven, secured in heaven. This is incredible motivation to thank God for and continuously pray over. And that is only possible if you meditate on what Christ has secured for you. Charles Spurgeon says this about faith, love, and hope. He says, I quote, faith goes up the stairs that love has built and looks out the windows which hope has opened. I'll read that again because that's just, that's gold. Faith goes up the stairs that love has built and looks out the windows which hope has opened. What incredible imagery coming from a man who meditated and prayed deeply on God's provision. Paul reminds us of this infinite significance of our hope as a foundational anchor for our souls in Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20, where he says, this hope, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he spends a whole chapter talking about Melchizedek, and then we won't go into that. Um, but this is a gospel. The sum total of Paul's gratitude for the Colossians unites the three chords of Christian virtue, faith, love, and hope. 
And then he repeats that same three-part phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And what does he say? Love. Love is the greatest. So how is, how is this the gospel? How is this the gospel? Here's how. Our justification by God's perfect son through faith. Our sanctification made more sure through our love for one another. And the hope of our future resurrection with Christ in glory. That's the gospel. Faith, completely justified. Love, active in sanctification. And hope, hope for your future glorification. That's salvation. That is the content of the gospel. So to recap point number two, the gospel consists of faith in Jesus, love for others because of the hope of heaven. So as the Colossians consider the hope that utterly transformed their lives, Paul reminds them of their initial encounter with him, with Christ. In point number three, the consistency of the gospel. And then the rest of, of, the rest of verse five says, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So here Paul is referring, he's referring to a past series of events in which the Colossians heard and received the good news of Jesus Christ. This passage reminds me of Jude verse three, where we read, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to all the saints. The faith was, is, and always will be the same. I like how uh, Pastor Dave often says, if it's true, it's not new. If it's new, then it's probably not true. It's consistent. It always has been the same. And there's so much truth to that. Although some faithful believers may come up with more creative ways to explain the gospel, obviously depending on each individual interaction or conversation, it shouldn't be recreated. You can make it creative, but don't recreate it. It is beautiful just the way that it is. And there's a difference between the gospel and the fruit of the gospel. The gospel is the seed. The fruit of the gospel is the harvest. It's visible. It's life-changing. This is exactly what Paul draws attention to in verse 6, which he, where, where he expands on that. And he says, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul saying that he has been constantly bearing fruit and increasing is a reference or an allusion to Genesis 1.28, when God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. This kind of seems random. What does that have to do with this? Here's what this means. The Colossian Christians have begun to participate in the new creation and thus have begun to carry out the original commission to Adam and Eve in a redeemed manner. 
This is made possible through the last or the second Adam's perfect obedience. Now commissioning us all. You have a responsibility. This is the same responsibility that Epaphras had, which we'll see in the next point. But in verse six, Paul also compares the gospel to the grace of God in truth, that this is what you understood. You understood the grace of God in truth. So why does he, why does he make this comparison? The reason for that is because the gospel and the grace of God are completely inseparably intertwined. They're one and the same. Those who change or corrupt the gospel, Paul describes as fallen from grace in Galatians 6, where he says, I am amazed that you, are a, that you are so quickly desert, deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. So to leave the gospel is to fall from grace. To fall from grace is to leave the gospel. Obviously, Galatians starts off very harsh from the get-go. These are harsh words, but necessary words. Why? Galatians is literally the only letter where he, he begins so harshly. He, be, he begins not with thanksgiving, not with prayer, but with a rebuke. Why? Because our appreciation of God's grace is directly proportional to the understanding of our need for it. If we, don't, if we think we don't need it, we won't appreciate it. And to fall from that is to fall from the true message of the gospel. Paul describes this message as going out into all the world. This is in complete contrast to the Colossian heresy. The reason for that is because the power of the gospel was unlimited in its impact. And sometimes this surprises us. That guy, that girl, saved, redeemed, got married, had three kids, no way. I knew her back in high school. I knew him or her back in high school. Absolutely not. That's the power of the gospel. And then the gospel in turn works on, in your heart, softens your heart to welcome that person that, was, that it surprised you so much. That's what the gospel does. This is in contrast to the local, not the global, delusion of the Colossians' heresy because the power of the gospel was unlimited in his impact. So how encouraging and severely humbling would it be if your testimony, if your own testimony, had become part of the gospel message that was sweeping the world? How would you feel? To have all your dirty laundry out to dry. And it was, it was used to encourage others. It was making a significant impact. That would be both encouraging and severely humbling that God would use your past, however destructive, however sinful it may have been, to work on others, to work in others. You see, something happens 
when you truly receive the gospel. You understand the grace of God in truth. That's what happens. You understand the grace of God. It doesn't just stay in the mind, but it becomes an experience. It becomes action. The way Paul substitutes the gospel with the grace of God highlights that everything about the gospel is the result of God's grace. This is what, is, what he has done in the world and in believers, which is unmerited in all humans. We don't deserve it. And as a, the common um, acronym for grace is God, God's riches at Christ's expense. It was, not, it, was, it was supposed to be for you. God's wrath. So Carl Truman says this about the grace of God, which I think is a beautiful quote. He says, it is because we are saved by grace that grace then works in our own lives to accomplish God's purposes for us. The Christian life originates in God's grace and is lived by God's grace. That's the end of the quote. So do you see God's grace as, as almost like an energy source? Just meditating on it. That God has favor for you. Does that motivate you to obey? Because that's how the Bible talks about grace. This is why uh, Paul, especially in Colossians, he bookends the letter with grace of the, may the grace of God and peace be with you. And then he ends with may the grace of God be with you. This is how grace is explained in the Bible. And I just pray that you see it that way too. Let God's favor, favor motivate you to love motivates you to grow in the faith, motivates you to be a hopeful person. The Colossians and us as well are a, were a part of a global movement initiated and empowered by God himself. It was global. It is global. So to recap point number three, the consistency of the gospel. The gospel has historically been active, fruitful, and truthful. It, it was, is, and always will be. Now, to turn to our messengers, the carriers of this beautiful message, with our last point. Point number four, the carriers of the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed by faithful servant-hearted believers. Verse 7 says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. The reassurance that this provided to the Colossians was monumental. In the rest of the letter, Paul compares the vain philosophies of the world with the true gospel wisdom of the Lord. By doing this, he essentially says, this good news has never changed. It has never been influenced by the world's selfish motives. It was, is, and always will be the same. For a people, as we'll see, as, as we'll see more when we get through the letter, for a people that were acquiring a variety of teachings, practices, philosophies, traditions. 
Hearing from an apostle that the gospel has remained the same precious gospel was extremely comforting, and it should be. 2,000 years. It remains the same. Does that comfort you? The fact that you, you base your entire life, every, every decision of every day, you base your entire life on this faith. Isn't it comforting that it has remained the same? One of the most beautiful things that I've, I've noticed, obviously, you know, being married and, and having a, a little girl and just being around youth all the time, one of the most greatest, or one of the things that, that youth, um, and even, I mean, I think all humans, value the most is consistency. Do you realize that? Even, even if a parent is abusive, hey, at least they're consistently abusive. I'd rather them be consistently abusive than tell me that they love me and then, you know, whatever, use your imagination, right? And it's the same with the youth. If you're consistently there, present, intentional, authentic, they will value your presence. And just think about what effect that has on our faith. I mean, we, this is Thousand Oaks. We live in a particular demographic. But people who don't even speak English believe the same thing as you do. Thousands of years ago, halfway across the world, believe the same thing and have for a very long time. That's precious. That's consistent. That's so reassuring. And I, I can imagine how beautifully encouraging that was for the Colossian believers. Hey, what you've heard, what you've been uh, transformed by, it's actually transforming people all around the world. Let that encourage you. Paul often refers to himself as Christ's slave, which indicates his humility and absolute desire to carry out Christ's will. This was everything that was on his mind, was God's will. And he mentions Epaphras as well. So to know that you are in the family of God with others, with the same heart, with the same goal, and motivation is po quite possibly one of the most beautiful things. One of the most beautiful things, one of the most beautiful gifts to the church. So just think about all of the people who have believed across, across the world, along all of history, you have the same heart, you have the same goal, and you are indwelt by the same God. That's transformative. That will get you up in the morning to obey. <clears throat> I am constantly, constantly being both convicted and encouraged to hear about faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord, preaching the gospel, and then hearing how those people responded to it. And I say both convicted and encouraged on purpose. Convicted because I know that I should be doing it more. And encouraged by both the negative responses and the positive ones. The negative ones because I know that I'm not alone. It's been 
probably really rare for a person to believe almost instantly. But do you believe that it can happen? Have you seen that? Honestly, just thinking about that, I've been so encouraged to see Sarah here. I was working, I, many of you may not know the story, but I, I drove for Amazon before I started working here, and um, I was in Sherman Oaks. I really disliked meeting up with another driver to kind of help them finish the day um, in Sherman Oaks because it was usually on a very busy street. And so uh, you, you guys may have, may have seen them in traffic, um, the Amazon drivers. They're usually in the way. That was me. Um, and so I got, a, I got a text from our dispatch person. He said, hey, meet with this person at a 7-Eleven. Usually 7-Elevens are at the intersection of, a, of very busy streets. And so I'm like, okay, all right, fine. Um, I go there. I see this construction worker talking to what seemed to, seemed to me like a homeless person uh, singing worship or, or just playing uh, his guitar and singing. And they were talking. And I went into the 7-Eleven after I helped my, my friend, my, my a coworker, uh, load his stuff. And I walked into the 7-Eleven and I thought to myself, I think I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a buy some. I'm going I'm to either take some money out and give it to this man um, or a Gatorade or anything like that. So I did and I walk out and he's seeing the goodness of God. I walk out, and I was like, are you seeing the goodness of God? And then this construction worker says, oh my goodness, you too? You too? And he starts crying. He starts crying, and he gives me a hug, and, he just, and we just share this moment. That construction worker was Adam. Just think about how, how, how this disdain that I had for, for meeting up with a coworker at the, towards the end of the day, rush hour, and quite possibly the worst place to be. And we have this moment of divine intervention, of encouragement. This, this, he's a very talented singer, was singing the goodness of God and this, this construction worker who really needed that, who really needed that encouragement in that moment, God miraculously, divinely worked in all of our hearts. And many of you have seen Adam around here. He's doing good things. Yeah, Adam. Adam got baptized a few weeks ago, and that he's a faithful brother. But all of that, all of that, all of those feelings, all of those emotions led him here. Those conversations and eventually brought Sarah here too. Because she knows Adam. And j just incredible. Absolutely incredible. So let that be a conviction and both encouragement to speak. To be a person who is motivated by the precious truth of the gospel. Because you never know. You never know what it can do to a person's life. And then subsequently do things for other people. You are not 
in this alone. And this is what Paul focuses on when he, said, when he mentions Epaphras, a beloved citizen of, his, of their hometown. I know that guy. But if you hesitate, if you hesitate to share the precious good news, as many do, as many do, I want to challenge you with something, not to judge, but to push you a little out of your comfort zone. Here's how I'm going to do this. You cannot share what you do not own yourself. You cannot impart what you do not possess. So maybe, maybe the reason why you hesitate is because it hasn't really ravished your heart. That's a challenge. It's no judgment, but I want you to reflect on that. You cannot impart what you do not possess. The gospel although it has often been manipulated, twisted, and misused by many, can only be carried by a faithful owner of it. You can, you can always tell if someone has been ravished by the gospel. You can always tell. As faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the responsibility to share the good news that we received through the faithful testimony of others. Whenever I think about the sharing the good news, my mind often goes to Romans 10, verses 14 and 15, something, uh, a passage that you're probably familiar with, with, where Paul says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who, in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are, they, they are sent just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That's humbling. Those, that's a humbling passage. Paul's being rhetorical, but he's being rhetorical to send a message. How? Let me ask you, Romans, Jewish Gentile believers, how do you think it's going to happen if they don't hear it, if you don't speak this miraculous work of salvation, of preaching the gospel and having someone come to saving faith is a miracle. It's miraculous. But it also bears witness of the divine. And we see that in verse eight when Paul says, and he also informed us of your love in the spirit. You see, their love for the saints, their love for each other, is a God-empowered, spirit-saturated, supernatural love. Yeah, the love that we have for one another, the world doesn't know that. When you see a biblical, God-fearing marriage, the world doesn't know that. In fact, they're probably trying to tear it apart. Redefine it. But it is an affront to what God has made possible. This phrase, love in the Spirit, means that it is a love inspired by means of the Spirit. Something that only the Spirit can produce. This is why, I think it's Paul, no, it's a gospel writer. You're commanded to not be unequally yoked. This is why. 
It is a reflection of what God is doing. And here, just kind of as a quick side note, we see another glimpse of the Trinity. Faith in Jesus Christ, as we saw in verse 4. The grace of God, usually referring to the Father at the end of verse 6. And then love in the Spirit here in verse 8. Paul reminds us by, 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 by kind of giving this, this, what I call a Trinitarian echo, because we don't see the word Trinity. By, by kind of invoking this, this echo, Paul reminds us of the intimacy and fellowship God has within, him, within himself. And as we meditate on that perfect unity, we remember the intimate bond and spiritual benefits we share as God's people. We are to reflect our God because he is in perfect unity with himself. And so we are to aspire to that. So our inheritance, our gift, our motivation and prize is God himself. Not the patience he gives me, not the strength I cry out for in prayer, not simply the works of his hands, but his face. Himself. With giving us himself, we have patience. We have joy. We have strength. We have compassion, gentleness, wisdom, and everything else that'll keep us, preserve us until we see him face to face. These precious truths are not just with Paul, or what Epaphras, or any other biblical hero holds dear to their hearts. It is every believer. It's every carrier of the gospel. So, to recap point number four, the carriers of the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed and owned, cherished by Faithful, servant-hearted believers. It cannot be any other way. So, in a letter focused on Christ's supremacy, it's only natural for Paul to begin with the precious good news that each one of you have, hopefully, that you have come to cherish and to hold true yourselves. And I pray, I pray you continue to do so until you see him face to face. And then it's, cur- it's all curtains from there. Amen? All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for all the spiritual blessings that you have imparted to us by your spirit. And Father, as we reflect on this precious letter that you moved in the heart of Paul to pen from a Roman prison, we pray that this letter encourages us, that the words here, that the wisdom in, in its words, that they illumine our heart, that they empower our spirit to obey, to serve, to love, and to reflect a perfect unity that you share. And so, Father, we just, we humbly come before you to thank you, to pray for others, 
and to be motivated and ravished by your precious message to love you, to obey you, and to love others in the process. So Father, as we go out from here, I pray that our lives are changed and that we, are, that we, that we possess this message and that hopefully others come to possess it as well through our faithful obedience in preaching it. And so, Father, we thank you. We commit this time. We commit our lives to you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.